0: but what a beautiful just to notice the melody to recognize it and to sing our voices in confluence together lifting up Christ and then two of their own two villagers who literally lives at home literally live in homes without running water electricity air conditioning anything like that and they stood up and i recognized what they were saying they were at the end after my sermon that was translated in their language they began to talk about malachi 3:10 do you know what it talks about I bring in your tithe to the storehouse. That's not the sermon today, so don't leave. But they were preaching that. I just, I remember thinking, man, what, who are these people and what do they have to give? What, what can they bring as an offering to the Lord? And Drew Mellon, Deacon Drew, as I call him now, he, he asked our team of Fondren Church people at the end of our trip and debrief, he said, How many of you feel like you brought God to Cambodia? And we all just laughed because he's there and he's working. It's amazing how how big God is. And I vowed on the way home after experiencing all of experience with our team as we flew from Phnom Penh to Shanghai, Shanghai to New York, New York to New Orleans, plus a three-hour ride home. With exhaustion and jet lag, I promised to not complain at least for a week or two. How do y'all think I've done? (laughs) Why are you laughing? That's a judgment, isn't it? Just your, your laughter alone is so judgmental. Do you see God as a God of no... Or a God of yes. Look what 2 Corinthians 1.20 says. It says, for all the promises of God, find their yes in Him. Would you say that with me? Let's say it together. For all the promises of God, find their yes in Him. Say, for all the promises of God. For all the promises of God, find their yes in Him. This morning I wonder I wonder what promise of God you're looking to. I wonder what you're clinging to. Maybe God's maybe his faithfulness. Maybe maybe his wisdom. Maybe maybe you're holding to the promise that God is your light and your life and your shield. He's your protector. He's the uh, lifter of your head. He's your shepherd. He's going to promote contentment in you. He's going to give you satisfaction. He's going to supply all your riches according to Christ Jesus. Maybe you're looking to him for one of his promises. Maybe you say, preacher, I can't think of any of those verses, man. I just need God to be real. I need God to show up in my life. And the scripture says, I want, us, I, want this, I want us to weave this in over the next six weeks, for the, all the promises of God find their yes in him. And you know, I think we've got Jesus wrong. I think we see Jesus as a no leader, as a no man, as a, as a no God. Have you noticed sometimes when you bring up Jesus or when Jesus comes up by another, that it can somehow shrink and limit the discussion? Ever notice that? But I believe Jesus, the the Jesus that we do not know of, the Jesus that we're just getting a glimpse of, I believe that he doesn't shrink and limit the discussion. I believe it, that he brings it into a big level because Jesus, uh, this God of, of promises, this yes God, he's bigger and he's wider and wilder and more marvelous and more loving than we ever dreamed of. That this good news, is it's radical, it's revolutionary, it's refreshing. And I want to ask you two questions this morning. I'd love for you to keep it in front of you for these remaining weeks. The first, or these both of them. Does God limit you? Or does he liberate you? Second, do do you see God, is is he more concerned with correcting you or connecting with you? Thought about it? Nothing is more important about you than your view of God. Nothing else will affect you more than this. What is your conception? What is your idea of God? Does he limit you or does he liberate you? Is he more concerned with correcting you or connecting with you. How many of you live in a two-story house? You got stairs, right? Let me ask you, are, are you a bad parent, a bad mom and dad if you put one of those gates up at the top of the stairs to keep the kid from plummeting down below to its death? Are you a bad parent? Are you a bad parent for setting up that boundary? No, that's a good parent. Are you a a good parent, if you have little ones and you, you put something in front of that electrical plug, all the electrical outlets, is that a bad parent? That's a good parent. A good parent sets up boundaries. And there's something in. I mean, little boys go after those outlets like, just like a tractor beam, man. I mean, they're, they're, they're going to put a metal object in there, right? I mean, it's just the way it goes for little kids, especially uh, little boys. But a loving parent... Bring some limits in order to liberate. And you know what I know, especially if you're parenting toddlers, little ones these days. I mean, there's something in that little boy, that little girl that just screams, it cries out against you. This isn't love. You're not giving me what I want and I want what I want. Do not impose your way on me. Now, I want to say this. That God has a no. You get that, right? God gives us a no. There are ten commandments. Can you name them? Thou shalt not. And God gives us, he he asks us to heed, to hearken, to to lean in, to understand these these commandments and what they mean. Because they're meant, even though it sounds so negative, so no-oriented. Thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not. God wants to, through these commandments, liberate us. In Proverbs 6, it says there are six things that the Lord hates. No seven are an abomination to him. God detests these seven things that he wants us to hate them as well. Romans chapter 12. Love what is good, hate or abhor what is evil. God has a no. There's a list for us in the New Testament. We ought to put off. In other words, we ought to say no to things like anger, wrath, malice, slander, gossip, malicious intent. Things like this are, are not good for you and I. It doesn't lead to human freedom, to a life that flourishes. We need to understand that God has a no. But the challenge is from 2 Corinthians 1, for all the promises of God. That in him, in who? In Jesus, they find their yes. That next passage, if you turn there, I can tell you that it talks about some other promises, just like Paul. He those promises all flowing from the good character of God. It says, God says that He uh, He establishes us, He anoints us, He He seals us. He places his spirit. He gives us his spirit in our hearts. What does it mean God seals us? In other words, he says, you are mine. And there's nothing that can pluck you out of my hand. Do you see a God who's more concerned with correcting you or connecting with you? The promise of Jesus in John 15 is that we would have joy, that joy would be complete. Your life would overflow. In John 10, he has this vision. Do you know about the Jesus vision? It's different than what a lot of churches purport to today. But the vision of Jesus is that your life would be lived in abundance. Over these weeks, we're going to look at some big themes of Scripture. Today, the yes of creation. We're going to look at the yes of Christ, the yes of the cross, the yes of of community, and an interesting one, the yes of nonconformity. And then finally, the yes of contentment. And this morning, I want to talk for a moment, just in the balance of our time, about God as our creator. What are the promises? What are the realities of God as your creator? Genesis chapter 1, you know how it begins, right? In the beginning, say it with me if you can. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was formless and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved on the face of the waters. I lost you, didn't I? It sounds so otherworldly, doesn't it? Yeah. Let me ask you. I mean, if your mind goes where my mind goes, I mean, let's let's be honest. This this Genesis account, I mean, it's it's not gathering steam. It's not gaining momentum, is it? I mean, hasn't evolution disproven the creation account? How how would you answer that? Hasn't has hasn't it been discredited? In Genesis one thirty one, after it gives an account, you know, God began to say. Uh, let there be light the first element of creation aren't you glad for a little bit of light that god created it. it's darker in the gym and i've got used to that natural light coming through the beautiful stained glass how about y'all it's a little, It just seems a little dark by the way y'all look better in dimmer lighting let me just say it's just a fact i'm not getting mean it's just a fact I've gotten wider, too, since I've left, right? This is my first time in the gym. But God said, let there be light. And what you see, hear me, in Genesis 1 is beautiful poetry. It's God's prose. It's inspired. It's inerrant. It's 100% right and true. It's the Word of God, but it's poetry. It's a whole different genre. And Moses, 3,500 years ago in ancient Mesopotamia, tells us, in poetic form about a God who creates. And God creates, and each element of creation, after he created, he said, "What well, you know this, he said, it is good. And he created a woman and said, she is great. Genesis 1, God says, it's good. But what about this idea of evolution? A little boy went to his dad and he said, hey dad, how did human beings get here? His father said, we descended from apes, son. The little boy went to his mom and said, hey mom, how did, how did human beings, how did we get here? She said, God made us in his image. He said, well, dad said we descended from apes. Mom said, well, I'm talking about my side of the family. <laughs> There's a man that I've been reading on the last few years because uh, don't, don't, don't throw me out, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. But his name is this. Let's put it on the screen. It's so good. John Polkinghorne. Now I was writing this sermon a couple of days ago at Slotsky's Deli. Y'all ever been to Slotsky's? Funny name, serious sandwich. You ever seen that? That's what they say. Funny name, serious sandwich. Here's a funny name, but a serious guy. He's a a Cambridge physicist and an Anglican priest. And I, I think he's probably just might be the foremost thinker and writer and orator on faith science issues in our day. And he talks about, and he's helped my understanding to understand science, that God values science. I, I want my kids who are going to be going off to college one day to hear this. God is a huge fan of science. He's an artist, and he himself is a scientist. He's the one who created man and and, and created us to postulate a theory and to look for a hypothesis and to use repeatable, observable data to come to conclusions to discover uh, how we're made and and what is true in this life. I believe that. I believe God is a fan of science. It's a false dichotomy to say otherwise. But John Polkinghorn gave a great illustration that I read recently. He said, if you see uh, water boiling in a kettle, and you ask the question, why is that water boiling in the kettle? One person could say, because gas particles are lighting up that, they're, they're heating up that two-part hydrogen, one-part oxygen. One person says that. Why, why is that kettle, why is, it, why is the water boiling in the kettle? Another person says, because I want a cup of tea. Now listen to me for a second. Which answer is Right. Say it, church. Come on, wake up. Which answer is right? They're both right, are they not? Now the first one responds in a mechanistic, scientific way. He's removed personal causation from it, a desire, and anything that's spiritual around that, and he and he is just simply giving you something that is accurate. Limited in his explanation, but it's accurate. The second person has not gone scientific or mechanistic in any way, but it's every much as true. Don't you believe that? Have you been able to do that? You want something, you go in the kitchen, you want something cold, a couple of minutes later it's cold, you want something hot or frothy or whatever, and you got it, right? That stems from your desire, maybe a misguided desire, maybe a gluttonous desire, but you get that, right? Both are true. And so you see, science is a good thing and it's a gift of God. And here's what I want to say. I want my kids and I, I want your kids and I want you to be ready for college or be ready for the future when you know what you believe and why you believe it and you don't see this erroneous dichotomy between faith and science because there's not one in God's eyes. And science is a good thing, but scientism, John Polkinghorne, John Jacob Jingleheimer-Smith would say, scientism is the idea. It's a religion per se. It's one of materialism and naturalism. It's one that says anything worth knowing has to be in the realm of science. Now, what really good-thinking person can believe that? You've got to disengage, just as some accuse us of leaving our brains in a bucket when we come to church to believe in a good and loving and all-wise benevolent creator, Uh, I would say, how how can so many buy into that idea that everything can be known through the realm of science? Now, God, in His sovereignty, I believe, created a good world. I believe He gives us this good gift all around us. Right, right before we began singing worship to God, a, a couple of folks in our church told me about their trip to Colorado uh, to look and to observe the mountains and to, to, to see the beauty. Those are the good gifts of God in His creation. I found it interesting and made a note of it this morning on the way here. Why do people who, uh, let's put it like this, they don't believe in God, but they're so hostile to the idea of God? Have you, have you ever wondered about that? I mean, what a, what a weird notion. I, I've joked before that there are two tenets to atheism. There is no God and I hate him. Now, by way of analogy, let me just say, I've never been angry at unicorns okay I've never sat around the house and gone unicorns oh I've never seen a, a fairy on the back of a car and seen people look at that and just go man they're destroying society they're ruining the world with those backwood beliefs unicorns Ugh. but it's strange isn't it it's strange isn't it to To have this idea that's not benign, and for many it's just not benign. Have you noticed that? And there's just something. You hear me preach it a lot, Ecclesiastes 3.11. God has set eternity in our hearts. There's just something there. Looking at the design of it all, it's pretty much a scientific fact that if the earth was a one percentage closer to the sun, we'd burn up. It's feeling like it now that we're into July. If we were 2% removed from the sun further back, that we would freeze to death. Could you imagine taking a scramble board with all those letters and slinging it up on the stage here in the Woodland Hills gym and spelling, Welcome to Fondren Church, summer services at 11 o'clock. I mean, what would be the plausibility of that? But to see the beauty and the order and the design of it all is just such a beautiful thing. And let me say this. When I read Genesis, I've done a lot of study. I've done a lot of research. What I say could come with some, uh, maybe an iota of controversy, but I want to say this. Believing Scripture is God's Word. Do you guys understand that we're conservative in our theology at Fondren Church? When I read Genesis, I don't read it through the prism of evolution, of mutation, or natural selection. I see it as Moses writing to as a worship of God uh, because creation... Is self-evident. You wouldn't imagine two philosophers having a cup of coffee and talking about the existence of the cup, would you? they just start talking about something else because they've got their cup of coffee right there. And you have to understand that. When Moses wrote this those 3,500 years ago, is he's given us the general how, but not all the particulars of that how. It's very, under, it's very important. And I think the church, I think we get this wrong a lot. I think we have a lot of goofy ideas. And here's what I want to tell you. Uh, churches, we get a lot of goofy ideas about the Bible. Have you ever noticed that? And we, I've noticed that we particularly get goofy ideas from the beginning of the book and at the end of the book. Genesis and Revelation can really throw us off. And I'll sit down with some of you and I just think, man, Hosea, the prophet said, knowledge is power. We, we need more knowledge about the scripture and what God is saying. And we need to enter into. There are different genres in the Bible. And when it's poetic, we need to understand that and enter into it. Moses isn't giving us everything. And I've said it before. I want to say it again. I believe in a God who creates, and he also creates the creative process. And I want to say this. There's nothing in science no future scientific discovery that scares me as a follower of Jesus. As somebody that believes this book, I'm not afraid of anything because all truth is God's truth. You ever heard that before? All truth is God's truth. And whatever is discovered, whatever's brought to bear on the creation process, we can celebrate that. Now, I want to say this. I want us to worship God this morning in the few minutes that we have as we think about the yes of creation. God, the creator, wants us. I mean, what should be your response? What should be mine as we consider God and his creation? Two things I want to give you this morning kind of fast. The first is wonder. That's W-O-N-D-E-R, wonder. It ought to evoke in us wonder. Write down, if you would, Isaiah chapter twenty-nine, in verse fourteen. This uh, statement where the prophet says, wonder upon wonder. It's stated right after this truth where he says, my people, they worship me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. That's the same thing that Jesus would go on to teach about in Matthew chapter 15, quoting from the prophet Isaiah. And he says the answer to it is wonder upon wonder. You see, God wants us to worship him. And when we discover about the creation, we're discovering something about God himself. Wonder upon wonder. What is the level of amazement, astonishment, and wonder in your life. Wonder upon wonder. I believe that's what Jesus wants to say to us many times when we get off kilter, when we get out of whack, when we're misguided. Wonder upon wonder. Are you experiencing me with your senses? Are you attuned and alert to what I have done? In the, the, the creation, it's this beautiful, creative process of joy and laughter where universes, just they, they let loose like sparks off the fingertips of God. Psalm 19 and verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the works of His hand. I will never forget as a middle school boy joining with friends in the neighborhood and looking at Saturn. The heavens declare The glory of God. Now, you guys are sitting here this morning with no sense of motion. Is that pretty fair? Depending on, I guess, what you did last night or whatever. But you're sitting here, right? And there's no sense of motion. But you're sitting on a planet that's spinning on its axis at approximately 100,000 miles an hour. You right now are traveling through space at a speed of 66,000 miles per hour. Today, before your day is done, you will have traveled 1.3 million miles in your annual trek around the sun. And some of you complain that you haven't been anywhere this summer. (laughs) Just as the psalmist says, the heavens declare the glory of God. Proverbs uh, chapter 20 and verse 12 says, The hearing ear and the seeing eye... God has made them both. Now your ear will take sound waves and convert it into nerve impulses that send messages to your brain that in turn performs a complex cognitive series of functions. Your eyes can see fine print in front of you and can see billions of stars miles away. You have a retina You have an optic nerve. You have a visual cortex. You have a posterior hippocampus. Do you know that? And if you drove to Fondren Church this morning, even though we're kind of hiding in the gym, if you drove to Fondren Church this morning and you didn't look at a map, you just drove here, you use your posterior hippocampus. Now, how many, that's, by the way, your eyes take a snapshot of the road and it stores it. It makes a mental map and stores it away. And how many of you this morning have ever thanked God for your posterior hippocampus? The hearing ear and the seeing eye. God has made both of them. The marvel of his creation. But here's what I want to say. We want to preach a full scripture here. Because uh, this week we saw a lot, didn't we, this, the past couple of weeks as we traveled the world with the team. But you know, as God calls us to experience wonder at his creation, he wants us to also to be involved in restoration. Just write down Isaiah 59, verses 15 and 16. And this is God looking at things and saying, things just aren't right. Something is gone to ride. if you read Genesis 1, you see a lot of good things. God's saying it is good. And then you read Genesis 2, and you see that this man and this woman in this garden, I mean, how difficult was it? One naked man, one naked woman in a cool garden, and they had one command. And it wasn't something kind of nebulous. Like I struggle sometimes if you say, um, show respect. All right? That's kind of general. I've gotten in a lot of trouble. I mean, what does show respect mean? I mean, there's a, a thousands of different ways to either show respect or not show respect. But God said, he made it pretty clear, do not eat. And write down Genesis 3.8 in one of the saddest versions. Of, I'm sorry, one of the saddest verses in all the scripture, any version. It talks about the results of uh, biting of the fruit, of disobeying God. You see, joy always leads, obedience always leads to joy. Let me put it that way. Obedience Always leads to joy. Now the scripture teaches later in Genesis that there's pleasure in sin. Some of you think, hey, I'm getting away with it. There's pleasure in sin for a season, the scripture says. But obedience always brings joy. And Genesis 3:8 tells what the man and the woman did. What did they do? When they sinned, they became ashamed. Uh, guilt clouded them, and they ran and they hid. Isn't that sad? And have you noticed that when we sin, what do we do? We run and hide. We're watching this Georgia father. I've been gone out of the country, but I've just been back a few days, and I noticed that that the, the nation's attention, rapt attention, is focused on a Georgia father who leaves his tiny toddler in a car. And there's Google searches of how long does it take a dog to die in a car. There's sexting to numerous girls. During that stretch, and we look at that Georgia Father as it's played out on national television, and we say, Man, there's just nowhere to hide. Have you seen? Have you looked into his eyes and seen his face? I mean, disobedience and sin, malicious intent, going away, going away from the path of God, it doesn't lead to joy. And that sin, there he is. I mean, he's just naked out there. Where do I hide? Where, where do I run? I did something really evil and really bad. And let me say this for, for us to be the church we need to be in Fondren and West Fondren and Jackson and around the world, I want to say to, this, say to you this morning we need to be dialed in. Just as we need Isaiah twenty nine fourteen wonder upon wonder. As we need to move away from worshiping God with our lips only and having our hearts far from him. And we need to move toward God and the wonder of who he is in the creation. Because you see, you wouldn't study Picasso without looking at his paintings. You wouldn't study the life of Beethoven without listening to his music. You wouldn't study the life of Shakespeare without reading his classical writings. And when you and I, if you look at Paul in Acts chapter 17, when he walked through Athens, he said that the creation teaches us about the creator. And we need to be caught up in wonder, but we need to also be dialed in. And Isaiah 59, 15 to 16 says things aren't right and we are to be involved as God's people in the restoration of it all. The good news of the gospel. I look at Genesis 3.8 and it's already pointing to Jesus. And the good news of the gospel is that you and I can come out of hiding. That we can acknowledge our sin. And you and I are healthier. Let me tell you, this pastor's sins are many. Y'all, you need to know that. Not as bad as you, but there are many. But man, I look and I think I've got a friend who works with a child advocacy center. And every day, five days a week, this person deals with law enforcement officials when it comes to children who've been physically and sexually abused. My friend is dialed in, wouldn't you agree? Parole officers, private investigators, undercover police officers, social workers. There's just some people who've got to, they, their jobs dial them in to the fact that we live in a broken world. That creation has, there's been a reversal of it there's, there's been a fall where we have rejected God and adopted a materialistic view and we begin to live in our own way instead of wonder w-o-n-d-e-r man has wonder w-a-n-d-e-r who else is dialed in? you know who I'm, oncologists are dialed in? oncology that's got to be a terrible job Now, you make a lot of money if you're an oncologist. You make a a good bit of money. You're you're really respected. But to be there and to every day, your job is to hang out with people and love them and nurture them and fight for them and fight with them when uh, cancer is eating away at their body. And have you noticed cancer doesn't care about how much spinach you eat? That's not the ultimate say. We're all cramming blueberries in our mouth, right? Hoping, hoping that it'll work. Now, blueberries are better than Big Macs. But we live in a world where creation has fallen and there is death and disease and there is decay. And an oncologist sees that, they're dialed in. But for the rest of us, for the most part, that we're just not that dialed in, but something bad happens. We get sick or a loved one gets sick or we see something. I go to Cambodia and I work at a center and I see a little child who wears the same thing every day, just a pair of ratty shorts with no shirt. And he's darker than most. And the reason he's darker than most is because he lives on the streets. In a city of 2.2 million people, he'll get a couple of square meals. He'll hang out at the center. But then he leaves and he runs around the city hoping that no one will harm him and some people will help him. And when he runs out of energy, he just lays down on a pile of trash. Sometimes when we see things like that, the fog lifts and we're dialed in and we see that the created order has been messed up, that this thing called sin is very, very real. The God of yes invites us to wonder. He he wants us to be caught up in the delight of His creation. And just as real as that, He wants us to say yes to the God of yes, to be involved In restoration, Romans 8, y'all know, if you hang around Fonder Church, you know how I feel about Romans 8, right? Romans chapter 8, verse 20 and 22. Do you understand this? For the creation, there's that word, was subjected to futility, not willingly because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption, obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Now straight, I've never experienced the pain of childbirth. I've been in the room. Ladies, thank you. My woman, she has said things I didn't know were in her. I mean, I haven't experienced the pain, but it, it, it's a significant level of pain, I understand. And Paul has given us this picture, a, a real picture That this world and this very planet and everything that's within us, it's not yet there. There's the creation and there's the fall and there's the restoration for which we are to be involved in. Church, I want to ask you this morning. Again, these two questions we're going to keep before you. Do you see a God who limits you or liberates you? Do you see a God who's more interested in correcting you or connecting with you? Your creator God. He wants you to find the yes in Him. Because you see, He's made all of this. And He's made you. He's made you. These weeks ahead, I'm excited about us exploring some big themes. Some big themes under an affirmative God that affirms a yes in you and in I would you pray with me for all lord lord jesus for all the promises of god find in you a yes And Lord, we, as that verse says, that we utter an amen through you and for you. We utter an amen for who you are and for all of your promises. And God, in these weeks, as we look at uh, the cross, and look at Christ, as we look at community, as we look at uh, the green light, that God, that you're giving us, the way that you've created us, the, what you're, you're calling us into, I thank you today that holding true to your word and following Christ ought not to limit or shrink the discussion or the experience of living, but it widens it. It it makes it bigger and deeper and mysterious. Lord, I pray that you create in us a desire for truth. Lord, we can rest. Your creation is not a no. Your creation is a yes. And you've given us a yes. You're giving us a yes to to explore. And every truth that's discovered can cause us to appreciate you more. The heavens declare your glory. You have made man. You have made us. Lord, in our hearts we cry out to experience you, to taste and see that you are good. Lord, I pray that you would today receive our worship in these uh, moments, in the balance of our time, Lord, as we sing to you and as we, uh, Lord, consider making this this room a place for prayers to go up. Lord, you want to do something in us, God I pray for any life here this morning that's limited you that sees you as a limiting God that hasn't accepted you and received the yes Lord as the next verse says I I pray that we would expand our minds to think about how you can establish us and anoint us and seal us and give us your spirit within in you we pray in Jesus we find our yes.